Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can send me uh, comments, questions, comments, questions, requests um, at raj at rajbalkaran.com. Um, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alexander Rocklin, who is at Audubon University in Columbus, Ohio. Um, we are speaking uh, on his book that you've probably already heard about, uh, The Regulation of Religion and the Making of Hinduism in Colonial Trinidad. Um, Consider this part two of the Caribbean Studies interview. Uh, hello, Alex, and welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, I would note, you know, we're we are recording this during the the quarantine in twenty twenty, and so I hope people out there listening are staying safe, uh, staying inside, and listening to the New Books Network. Uh, indeed. Um, uh, it's not a surprise that um, uh, I did say. Uh, so 2019, I think I did about 22 interviews. Um, in April, I think you're my sixth or seventh. Right. <laughs> April of this year. And yeah. so part of that, um, my workflow hasn't changed too, too much because I'm uh, a bit of a recluse who works out of home. Uh, of course, my mindset has changed a lot. But um, this is sort of my way to, to fight the war effort to give people folks to listen to something at home. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, a, it's valiant work. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm not going to go too much into the genesis of your project because I, I imagine most of the listeners um, will have already or soon will listen to part one um, with um, Alejandra Bronfman in, in Caribbean Studies. Um, but there's so much fascinating material that obviously pertains to to Hindu studies that we had you back on here. Actually, full disclosure, there was interest in learning more about Hinduism in the Caribbean and the West Indies. Uh, We had a couple of podcasts that talked about the Hindu diaspora recently. Um, Suzanne Newcomb's Yoga in Britain and um, uh, I think it was Pankaj Jain's Dharma in America where, where folks were really interested in in, whoa, there have been, they've been quote unquote Hindus in the new world for over a century. Yeah. And so I reached out to Alex and he was happy to oblige and actually put on my radar that he'd already been interviewed for New Books Network. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we figured, you know, there's, there's no shortage of material in the book. Um, if you had to tell us the, the main, just to give us a focal point for this interview, the main theme question, the main, the axis mundi of your book, what are you really interested in here? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that really kind of drew me in uh, was, you know, how, how do people become religious, right? If this, if this, you know, one of the things, even from when I was an undergrad, this idea that was kind of percolating that really kind of uh, caught my interest was this idea that religion is not a natural category, that it's, that it's, it is imposed through processes of colonization, European colonization, um, 
along with a, a constellation of other categories, like for instance, race. Um, and so then how, how then do people get religion, right? And so one of the kind of the, one of the kind of driving questions as I was thinking about the project, as I was doing my research in Trinidad um, uh, in 20, 2011 for the longest stretch was like, how, how do people who, who don't have religion uh, gain access to religious freedom, right? How, how do you kind of begin to shape your, uh, your understanding of the world and, and how you live in it in order to gain, um, gain access to a, a set of privileges that are afforded only to practices that are put underneath this category? Um, and, and for indentured laborers, uh, you know, Indian indentured laborers in Trinidad, this was a really uh, important set of issues, right? Because otherwise, when, when they were um, under their labor contracts, they really couldn't leave the plantation uh, very often. And religion was, was one of the few excuses for doing so. So there's a number of fascinating points uh, you touch on there. And there's, there's sort of two kernels that I think really worth unpacking, particularly for um, an educated public uh, who may or may not have the background. Um, uh, the first pertains to religion and the extent to which um, religion may well be viewed as a construct. I want to ask you about that. Um, I also want to ask you about, you know, well, how is there, how has there been Hindus practicing in the West Indies and Trinidad, Guyana, for example, for all this time? Folks are really interested. I mean, a lot of people don't really know the backstory of that. So, um, the reason I pose both questions is because I'll leave it up to you as to which one you'd like to tackle first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess for the for your second question as to the kind of the, the kind of general background, right? Indians were after so after the end of of slavery um, in the British Empire, um, Indians uh, were uh, kind of came to the Caribbean um, as indentured laborers. So basically, there was this outcry among. Uh, the white planter class that they, because they didn't have slaves any longer, they were going to go bankrupt and no, you know, they wouldn't want to, they wouldn't get, you know, uh, people to work for them, uh, which was, I think historians have made the argument was rather exaggerated. Uh, but so because of this, uh, this pressure from, uh, from planters, uh, the British worked to set up uh, a, this indentured labor scheme, um, bringing um, Indians from, from all over India to the Caribbean. They also ended up going to, to South Africa uh, to to uh, to Fiji, um, to and within the Caribbean, they're they're in the kind of broader greater Caribbean basin, so in in parts of um, of South America, including Guyana, um, and and Indians were uh, entering into labor contracts not only in British colonies but also ultimately in colonies in the in the Dutch and uh, in, in Dutch colonies in um, in French colonies as well. Um, so that's how Indians end up in the Caribbean in the first place. Um, and in, in kind of thinking then about, uh, uh, this kind of the idea of Hinduism itself and kind of where this emerges, uh, the kind of other side to that, uh, is the, is the category Hindu. Um, and so when the indentured labor, indentured labor scheme begins, um, in the 1830s, um, I think the first indentured laborers go to Mauritius, uh, in, um, the Indian ocean in 1835. And you have the first Indians arriving in Guyana in 1838, um, and in in this period, Hindu is um, for the most part a um, a regional category and, a, and an ethno-racial category. Uh, so if somebody was Hindu, it for the most part it meant somebody who was from India. Um, 
And so that then leads to the kind of complexities of, of how, how the category of religion can kind of be operationalized in this context and how, how you know, in the, the title of the book, how Hinduism gets made. Um, part of that involves a transformation of this category, Hindu. So one might be inclined to think that religion is one of the most um, powerful and pervasive uh, forces on the planet. And so one might be intrigued at your, your claim, which is obviously not solely your claim, that, well, this is, uh, this is sort of an invented category. I think at one point you invoke Daisy Smith to say, well, you know, religion is basically a function of the scholar's imagination. Um, just uh, unpack what you mean for that in terms of the discipline so folks understand. Uh, when you say that religion is an invention, what is it that you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I- I think the, the idea that religion is not a natural category, that it's, that it's kind of emerges through, um, the religion as we know it today, emerges through processes of colonization and racialization, right? So it's, uh, the, as um, European empires begin to spread around the world, um, you know, beginning in the, the 15th um, uh, century, you have then along with this, this process of the emergence of mo- modern categories of, of religion as well as race and, and other categories. Um, and so it's this kind of moment of, I think probably in many ways for Europeans, attempting to kind of c- to compare, you know, what they think of as, as, as quote unquote religion, kind of capital R religion, which is Christianity, uh, to all these other kinds of practices that these other groups of people who they are engaging, engaging with, uh, who they are attempting to conquer, um, how, how that can compare those practices to what they're doing. Um, and, you know, I, I was very much influenced by the work of Tomoko Masazawa um, in her in, invention of world religions, right? That this uh, kind of gradually over the course of centuries and, and really kind of beginning to crystallize in the 19th century uh, when my, my book kind of begins, um, you have then the, the kind of formation of this idea that, well, there are, there are these, we, you have the concept of religion as a kind of separate and separable sphere of life and then you have the, the emergence of the notion of world religions, which is that there are these religions, which are kind of things in the world um, that exist out there, um, and they are separate and separable, and they're defined by a sincere belief. Uh, they're defined by a, a text or set of texts. Um, and, um, and so when I, when I began to, to look at the, the evidence for what the, the kind of social lives of indentured laborers was like, uh, when the indentured labor scheme begins in Trinidad, you really don't, I didn't really didn't see evidence for something called Hinduism, right? So part of one of the, the kind of uh, other fundamental arguments that I make in the book is that Hinduism was not something that was brought from India to Trinidad on the boat. Um, like people were able to, for instance, bring, you know, texts, like you could, pay, you could bring a copy of the Ramayan from, uh, from India to Trinidad, but you couldn't bring Hinduism. Um, that's something that really only emerges as a kind of a broader, a collective identity and social formation, uh, really beginning in the early 20th century, um, and so I, I see these these kind of emerge the emergence of of religion in many ways kind of precedes um, precedes Hinduism, right? That that indentured laborers have this idea of that they have religion kind of uh, imposed on them, and then they they very much incorporate this this concept and use it for their own purposes before Hinduism itself becomes a self evident way of of kind of identifying uh, and dividing up practices and groups of people yeah it's sort of always struck me that uh, um, the extent to which um, 
religion um, defies ready definition or categorization, that principle is exasperated or perhaps best exemplified in Hinduism. Mm -hmm. among, among the religions, it seems to be the case that what's happening on the globe among practices that we call world religions is um, happening almost as densely within the, the, within the South Asian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so you talk about this in your other interview, but it's worth mentioning here. What do you look at? You're looking at a particular uh, point in history and what sort of documents are you looking at? What data are you looking at for your work? Yeah, so I, um, I, for the longest stretch, I was in Trinidad for about 10 months and spent two months then in, uh, in, the, in London. Um, and I was primarily working in uh, archives, in the National Archives in uh, Port of Spain, as well as in the special collections at uh, the University of the West Indies uh, in St. Augustine. Um, and a lot of the material I'm looking at are either um, either colonial documents, so documents produced by by colonial officials. There were kind of uh, reports. Um, the the protector of uh, of the indentured laborers was a this kind of a official who was responsible for making sure that the interests of indentured laborers was being protected. Um, so those kinds of reports, reports from jails, um, official reports from uh, from um, from other kinds of institutions, hospitals, but also then kind of unofficial reports from um, uh, from missionaries, which I think we could also include among these kind of colonial documents. Um, and then the other major source are newspaper uh, articles. Um, a lot of, um, or the, the vast majority of indentured laborers were not uh, able to get education, and so they weren't producing their own, um, they weren't producing their own texts for the most part. So in in newspaper reports, occasionally, you know, reporters would would just would re either interview or or there's evidence that they were talking to uh, indentured laborers, oftentimes probably through a uh, a, um, uh, a translator, um, and occasionally there are also petitions, um, but that are written by uh, by Indians as well, um, which sometimes can be in official reports, um, but also were sometimes sent to newspapers too. Um, so, so primarily, I was doing archival work. I also did some participant observation. Um, uh, in a, I did interviews at a mosque uh, with an imam, oral history interviews, um, as well as did some work with a spiritual Baptist um, doctor, uh, and also uh, spent a little bit of time at a at a Hindu temple as well. So, what are the specific um, strands or tributaries, uh, threads, uh, sort of these religious? Um, traditions that we can uh, now discern in, in, in Trinidad? In Trinidad now? Um, yeah, I mean, I, both, both now and, and maybe primarily in terms of the period you're looking at, what are the different tributaries? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, that really kind of began to emerge for me as I was looking at the material is that there were early on, you know, by the kind of mid-late 19th century, say in the beginning of the 1870s, but even before then, uh, you had for for subalterns, generally speaking, a set of kind of ritual events on a shared calendar where seemingly people would come together. Um, and again, in this period, uh, Hinduism isn't a widespread uh, collective identity or social formation. So the people who are coming together to engage in ritual practices um, were from across uh, what we would think of today as kind of the world religion. So you'd have people who today we would call Hindus or Muslims or Christians, and it was people of India descent as well as people of African descent too. Um, and also at times, you know, people of Chinese descent or, or other folks. 
Um, and they were doing things like, um, they were doing things like firewalking, um, which was a, a tradition that in, in Trinidad is identified as being specifically South Indian or Madrasi. Um, oftentimes done for, for goddesses like uh, Mariaman or, or Kali or uh, Draupadi. Um, they were, uh, they were doing things like summoning spirits of the dead or, or kind of dealing with spirits of the dead, uh, which is a whole kind of diverse set of traditions um, that is, was at the time and still today referred to as obia, uh, although pr practitioners don't really call it obia. Um, uh, Ramlila uh, was another important um, kind of uh, ritual uh, event that was on kind of a shared calendar among subalterns, uh, which was the uh, the, the dramatization of the narrative of the Ramayana, um, and, um, and also uh, Muharram, uh, or Husay, uh, which is the commemoration of the martyrdom of, uh, of imams uh, uh, Hussein and Hassan, or the grandsons of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and that was particularly important for indentured laborers in the, uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, because that was actually the only day that indentured laborers, or, or it was actually two days that they got off from uh, from work that were specifically quote unquote Indian holidays. Um, so they had like Christmas off and they had uh, race day off um, and they, they weren't supposed to work on Sundays, but the, the, like the Indian holiday was actually Muharram. Um, and so that was uh, a, a really, I think probably in the 19th century, one of the, the most important uh, and kind of longstanding uh, kind of th rit ritual thread um, and those kind of, I think for many people, those ran together uh, as the kind of structure, the way in which their, their years were structured, um, certainly while they were in, uh, while they're working on plantations. Um, and it's really, it's really only in the early 20th century, uh, probably really most significantly by the 1920s, uh, that these get kind of disarticulated and are, are bundled together so that it's now not like kind of separate ritual complexes, but it's you know, these people are Hindus and they do Hinduism and they only do Hindu stuff. And these people are Christians and they only do Christian stuff. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, they, I think one of the things I try to trace are the way that these, these kind of threads are, are, are tangled up and then they're, they're untangled and they're retangled again uh, in different kinds of, uh, of kind of ritual formations uh, that eventually become something like, you know, the world religions. Who's doing the tangling do you see and why are they doing it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think part of, uh, maybe to, to kind of clarify what I mean by tangling, the, I was using your metaphor. Um, you know, one of the things that's kind of happening is that, you know, indentured laborers are thrown together with one another on plantations. Um, and I think one of the things that causes this process of tangling, we could say, uh, or is the is kind of the the imposition of the category religion itself um, that Indians are gradually um, beginning to understand their world in terms of uh, in terms of religion and not religion that they're they're kind of gradually seeing that this category is an important way of dividing up the world uh, in this colony um, and so um, and so what they kind of begin to understand that the the way that that people come together and how they're come together and when they're allowed to come together uh, really very much depends on this uh, category that's imposed to them by, by the British and, and very much in many ways de defined by British, uh, for the most part, um, Protestant assumptions about kind of what religion is supposed to look like. Um, 
and so I, I think those are kind of the, the the moments when Indians are particularly trying to get off plantations in order to engage in uh, these various rituals throughout the calendar year uh, are the moments when they're engaging in the discourse on religion. I think, you know, barring uh, a, a category from David Chittister, I talk about the uh, colonial comparative religion, um, and I specifically talk about the way that I talk about subaltern comparative religion, the way that subalterns um, are are using this category in order to to authorize, for instance, leaving a plantation in order to take a um, a model of the tomb of the prophet uh, prophet Muhammad's grandson Hussein on on a public road uh, in order to take it to the ocean or to a river, um, and when the government try, you know when police officials try and stop them. Uh, they can say, no, this is our religion. Um, and um, I think kind of those are, the, those are the moments, I think probably from, for the most part, things are not particularly tangled. And those are the moments when things got, kind of get tangled up, when people are, are forced to, to kind of think and speak reflexively about religion itself, kind of to reflect on what it is they're doing uh, and, and do this discursive work to, to kind of fit their practices into uh, the set of norms for religion that the British have imposed on uh, on the colony uh, in a significant way. And so uh, there's a, um, a number of examples I think you use in your book, but um, can you maybe dive into um, how this categorization was used uh, by the British or in terms of, of the utility of of of, of manufacturing religion in this way mm. uh utility for the british um yeah i mean i think you know it, it shows up in different kinds of ways i think one, i mean one of them one of the kind of obvious ones is the um the category of obia which is the this kind of it's a term used in the the british uh, caribbean and the anglophone caribbean today uh, that means something like black magic or witchcraft um and it's it's uh, usually defined kind of popularly as being kind of African magic. Um, and so one of the ways that um, the British were able to stigmatize uh, non-normative practices or to stigmatize uh, oftentimes violence on, on, on plantations was to say that it was the result of obia. Um, and oftentimes also when um, when people of Indian descent were engaging in uh, non-normative practices, oftentimes in the context of their homes, uh, and doing so as a, um, in order to do things like engage in uh, the managing of, of spirits of the dead or engaging in healing practices, um, they, they're, and in doing so, they're able to make money outside of the context of the, of the plantation system. They become, uh, again, targeted as practitioners of obia. And so um, oftentimes when they end up in court, um, the people who are being charged with obia are, you know, have a tendency in when I look at um, descriptions in newspapers to say, you know, what I'm doing is religion, right? I am a, I am a pundit, I'm a Hindu priest, um, and what I'm doing is religion. Uh, and then the police and the the judge and the the case will say, well, no, you're doing obia uh, because, you know, obviously this isn't, you're not, you know, you're not doing, uh, you know, proper religion because you're if you're a Hindu and you're having you know, people of African descent come to you who are Christian and you're, you know, dealing with ghosts, uh, you know, in relationship to them. Um, and so you, this, you know, it's oftentimes what, what is revealed then is this moments of back and forth where the British try and categorize as something as not religion uh, and 
the the, the kind of response um, from uh, from Indo Trinidadians is to say, you know, no, this is my religion, and therefore you have to respect it, right? Because um, you know, importantly, uh, one of the things that's one of the few freedoms that Indians are given is that they have the guarantee of of freedom of religion. Um, uh, in cer to certain respects. And so this gives a, a kind of weight to the category of religion for indentured laborers um, and, and other folks too. So in terms of the stigmatization of opia that you talk about, um, would you say that, that uh, the British powers, um, would you say they uh, produce the stigmatization or create it? Or would you say rather that they leverage an existing um, uh, stigmatization of practices such as opia. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think in some ways they they're leveraging it, right? I mean, I think the the kinds of practices that are called opia, or you know, another example is something like um, like firewalking, um, right? There are there are um, you know there were in in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, you know, uh, Indo Trinidadians who would have seen something like firewalking or people doing what people would call opia. Uh, would see that as being, you know, superstition or as being, you know, prob you know, ritually problematic even. Um, something like uh, both firewalking or, or obia may involve, for instance, things like animal sacrifice, uh, which somebody who was, for instance, uh, you know, identifying as, as high caste uh, may, um, uh, you know, see as, as troublesome, as problematic. Um, and, and so there were, there were certain kinds of uh, of debates among um, Indo and Afro Trinidadians themselves about kind of what what proper ritual practice involved, um, what what true uh, what was true and efficacious, what was kind of um, morally uh, positively valued, and what wasn't, um, and that itself was you know obviously in, in certain kinds of ways influenced by by uh, British assumptions as well. But I think it's a it's a kind of an ongoing and it was an ongoing and cyclical process. Um, and, um, um, yeah, that's what I would say. So do you want to tell us a little bit about, um, you know, reform movements that emerge, um, from within, uh, natives of Trinidad at that point? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, so the, you know, one of the things I, I kind of talk about in the book is that the, the first part of the book is about kind of religion and how religion gets, um, Gets imposed, and, and Indo, but also Indo Trinidadians are kind of adapting this category of religion for their own purposes. And the second part of the book, uh, in many ways, kind of looks then at, at the emergence of, of Hinduism, which only kind of happens after uh, religion gets um, gets in many ways naturalized. I think for for folks on the island, um, and so that the process of the emergence of, of Hinduism, I think, very much involves this uh, kind of attempts to uh, to reform practice. Um, and it's I probably you know in in many ways spurred by the arrival of of missionaries from the Arya Samaj um, from India beginning in the in the 19 teens, um, but really um, th this kind of project of of reform broadly really uh, picks up in the 1920s when you have this more concerted um, uh, kind of quote unquote orthodox Hindu reaction to the to the reforms that the Arya Samaj are trying to put in place. Um, so the Arya Samaj right is a is a reform movement um, from uh, the 19th century in, in India, which was trying to kind of, uh, as they as they saw it, bring 
uh, bring it, bring Hindus back to the kind of true religion of India, the um, the Vedas. Um, and so what what the Arya Samaj missionaries brought with them to Trinidad was a critique of uh, a critique of of certain kinds of caste distinctions. There was critiques of uh, of the use of of images and worship, critiques of of um, animal sacrifice. Um, and those those critiques, in certain kinds of ways, also lined up with uh, British assumptions about what proper religion ought to be, too. Um, and so, um, you know, Trinidadian um, Hindus who heard these kinds of critiques coming both from from uh, Arya Samaj missionaries who were who were educated, who were literate, um, and who were coming in and kind of telling them what was what. Uh, and hearing certain different kinds, but but similar kinds of critiques from, for instance, Protestant missionaries uh, who were that there were Canadian Protestant missionaries, for instance, um, in the south of the, of the island. Um, they were there was this kind of move among middle uh, an emerging middle class beginning in the 1920s to to kind of incorporate those critiques coming from from both Christian and also Arya Samaj missionaries, uh, but also to kind of push back against them and say, you know, we have our kind of true original orthodox Hinduism, which is not this modern, quote unquote, modern reform uh, uh, movement. And so um, you have then in, in the late, late uh, 1920s and early 1930s, the emergence of, of uh, what were kind of uh, Sanat and Tarim uh, movements. Um, these, and, and the use of Sanat and Tarim here is, the, is a kind of an attempt to try and translate I mean, in many ways, Hinduism um, as a as a kind of term um, to incorporate that concept as a Hinduism as a world religion in order to to create uh, these social formations um, that could bring in um, Hindus and try and kind of uh, create Hinduism as a kind of world religion in contradistinction to Christianity as well as uh, the critiques of the Arya Samaj as well as you know reacting to also uh, Muslim missionaries. Um, and Muslim movements on the island too. In terms of this um, this epoch of um, of reform of reformation within the, the Hindu world, which is really um, one can argue easily, probably was also a formation, right? That one can possibly craft the argument that there is no Hinduism without Hindu reform. Mm-hmm. That Hindu reform is actually the the impetus of defining and articulating and trying to grapple with. Um, naming something as vast as uh, um, what we now call Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Now, during this epoch of, of, of reformation and formation within the Hindu world, what is different? What is unique? What, what, why does it have a different traction, perhaps, in this context? So if you have these, um, just to use the example of the Arya Samaj movement missionaries, you know, what's different about what, what they are doing or not doing or able to do in this context versus if they were in um, uh, somewhere in South Asia? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of, one of the things that, that sets off Trinidad in terms of these different kinds of debates and process of reform, and as you say, kind of formation and, and how these uh, traditions are, are being invented and, and are emerging, um, it in the context of Trinidad, you have, I mean, first of all, it's, it's a small place, um, but then also you have um, uh, kind of tight uh, government control. You have, st- it, certainly in the early, um, um, 
in the early 19-teens, people are still, uh, to some degree, um, indentured laborers. Um, and then you also have a significant population of people of African descent, too. Um, so, for instance, the Arya Samaj, in doing, uh, in doing their work, uh, were, for the most part, speaking to, um, to Indo-Trinidadians, but there were also converts from Afro-Trinidadians, too, uh, who were who were changing their names and becoming, uh, you know, members of the Aris Amaj. Um, and so I think, you know, you, there's a, there's a different kind of, uh, there's a different kind of, uh, kind of ritual field. There's a different kind, uh, different set of histories, um, that lead to, um, different sets of concerns in terms of how this process of, of reform and also kind of the formation of Hinduism, uh, end up, uh, being, uh, being, uh, formulated. Um, I think in a significant way too. Um, so regarding your, your initial question and your research query about how people arrive at or come to religion in general and perhaps Hinduism in particular, um, what do you find? What are your findings? What do you answer? How, how do you answer the question you set out to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think one of the things that I was particularly uh, you know, interested to to note and to to trace in the book, um, was this kind of gradual process of the the kind of crystallization of the the quote unquote world religions, right? The way in which religions themselves are emerging as as what we're seen as very much separate and separable kind of watertight entities. Um, this the, the this trend towards exclusivity. Um, which increased, um, and I, I, you know, I think very much in in Trinidad today, as you know, historically in India too, um, these things that we think of as world religions, you know, were not and still are not uh, kind of mutually exclusive. There's all kinds of complexity and overlap between them. Um, but I think one of the things that that I was interested to know was the way in which, you know, as as Hinduism is emerging, um, even before. Hinduism becomes a more widespread collective identity in, in Trinidad, you have this move towards, uh, towards exclusivity. So for instance, the, um, the you know, uh, Christian missionaries, uh, you know, the, the Mortons were the missionaries who were working in the south of Trinidad. And they talk about how when they first started in the, in the late 19th century, um, that it was, it was very common for, for Indians you know, just to kind of come to church and, and check it out and participate. Uh, and they weren't there necessarily to convert, uh, but they were there, they would, you know, whether they were, you know, they were, you know, engaging in making offerings to, to goddesses or whether they were, you know, going to a mosque or what have you, they would still go to church and they would kind of do this together. Um, and by the 19 teens, you gradually have this, this kind of process of, of people stopping doing that. Um, and by the, uh, the 1920s and 1930s, you have kind of this move to try and among, um, inter-Trinidadians to try and kind of make religions kind of separate and separable and more exclusive, uh, entities. Um, so for instance, one of the things that I trace is the emergence of the, the first, um, uh, kind of Hindu organization is the Sanat and Dharma, um, association, which the first members of that. Uh, association were uh, um, uh, many of them are Christian, um, and there's this kind of this kind of moment of outrage among some um, Indian Trinidadian elites uh, who specifically are identifying as Hindu that there could be 
kind of members of an organization, a Hindu organization, and including the, the president of that organization, uh, were, were you know, identified as Christian. Um, so kind of part of that process of, of exclusivity or, or trying to create exclusive world religions is, this, is a process also of uh, trying to make uh, not only kind of separate and separable world religions, but also make, making separate and separable um, racial groups too. So, so trying to stop uh, Afro-Trinidadians from, from kind of loosely participating in, in these kinds of events, stopping Muslims and Christians from, from participating loosely in, uh, in Hindu events, um, and sort of making sure that you know, everybody has, is either Hindu or they've kind of gone through a, a conversion process. Um, in order to to make sure that kind of Hinduism, the borders of Hinduism are appropriately um, uh, policed. Were the missionaries successful um, in this context? Well, which which missionaries are we talking about? The Christian missionaries. Christian missionaries. Uh, I mean, so the Christian missionaries were unsuccessful in that the vast majority of Indians did not convert to to Christianity. Um, but at the same time, they were very successful in that many, uh, many Indians end up um, getting education from Christian institutions. Um, there, are, there are some secular, there's some secular schooling, um, but for the most part, uh, schools are, um, are religiously affiliated and early on, and you know, they're exclusively Christian, either Catholic or, or Protestant. Um, and so if, if Indians wanted to, um, wanted to get an education and also they wanted to get a leg up, if they were, uh, you know, if you wanted to get a job, if they wanted to get a job in, in, within a school, for instance, I mean, being a teacher was a very good uh, position. They had, to, um, they had to at least, you know, nominally be Christian. Um, so, so those who did convert uh, very often did so um, well, I imagine probably for all kinds of reasons, but one of the things that was gained was access to certain kinds of, of Christian privileges, um, things like a job. Uh, but again, very often, I think, um, you, know, th- you know, really, certainly in the, in the, through the, the early 20th century, even if people were converting, that still didn't mean that they weren't, you know, making offerings to Kali or, or Shiva or, you know, participating in, in Muharram or, or Jose. Um, and, it's only really kind of over only gradually that uh, it becomes the case that people are kind of assuming that if you become a Christian, then you do Christian stuff and you don't do Hindu stuff. Um, so that's one of the things that kind of gets gets debated in this this period of reform, particularly in the nineteen uh, the thirties and forties. Um, so so although I would say in some ways, although the the missionaries are unsuccessful in converting a lot of people. Right, the, the kinds of um, the kinds of things that, that missionaries were able to offer, uh, even if people don't convert, um, st- are still really valued. Um, so people are getting a Christian education, um, and through that process, even if they're not converting, they're in, very much incorporating kind of elite Protestant assumptions about what religion is like into their lives. Um, and so I think what, that's one of the one of the things that, that I track in the first part of the book is this process of the imposition of the the category of religion, and and one of the ways that happens is through uh, is through a kind of Christianization. That even if people aren't becoming Christian, they're becoming kind of Christianized in a certain kind of way, um, or I talk about it as kind of secularized in a in a way too, because uh, from an elite perspective, kind of true religion or or appropriate religion looks like Christianity, and particularly elite Protestant Christianity. 
Um, and so those, those processes are, are very much interlinked. Um, so that kind of how we, how we count success in, in conversion, um, you know, it, it may, people may not be uh, calling themselves Christian, but the kinds of assumptions and expectations about religion generally that, that both missionaries and colonial officials had become imposed and, and are, are incorporated and re, redeployed by uh, indentured laborers and their descendants um, uh, in, in really significant ways. You preempted what I wanted to ask about next, um, which was this idea of secularization. No, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, uh, you, you talk about the category of religion and implicit in that is the, the idea of, of uh, secularism, yes. And so um, you, you, you more or less said it in a nutshell, I think, just now in talking about the relationship between um, religion and Christianity and, and secularism. But I think it's really worth diving into. Uh, and what comes to mind is that so much of what you're seeing in this um, time and space of colonial Trinidad uh, and the aftermath is sort of um, as if you could magnify what's happening in various other parts of the globe in a very concentrated, manageable way. Um, and so I think it, it, I mean, obviously things are different in this context than elsewhere, but at the same time, I think um, you're seeing um, overt concentrations of what's happening uh, throughout the colonial world at this time. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, aside from this random airy-fairy insight, I was gonna ask you about um, the relationship between uh, Christianity, religion, Protestantism, and this notion of um, secularism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I mean, I think to, to your comment, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think tr one of the things that I found really fascinating about Trinidad was the way in which, uh, because, because so many, uh, Indians who were brought in were were indentured laborers and were oftentimes indentured for up you know up to ten years. Um, you know they were they're under close uh, they're under close colonial scrutiny, uh, kind of from colonial officials as well as from their their um, their kind of um, uh, dependents, including the, you know plantation owners and then their you know people who are working on plantations. Um, and so I, I think in some ways that I think you're right very much kind of accelerates these processes and I think. To segue to your question, I think one of those processes is this process of, of secularization, right? And so, um, I think there there is a kind of there's a way in which kind of missionization, education, and secularization are all interlinked with one another in the context of Trinidad. Um, and so that's that's one of the ways in which I'm you know I, I, in tracing those I'm I'm trying to trace the way in which uh, people are becoming religious that the the ways in which the category of religion itself is becoming naturalized in this context. Um, and so there, you know, there are a whole series of, of institutions uh, in Trinidad that are very much doing the work of, we could say, kind of secularizing the indentured laborers, right? They're, they're doing this, they're, you know, accelerating this process of, of imposing and naturalizing this idea that religion is uh, a separate and separable sphere of life um, and that, uh, that religion is, you know, meant to look like uh, elite Protestant Christianity in a significant way, right? That it's meant to be segregated off, that you, that it's meant to be contemplative, uh, that it's meant to be private. Um, and what that, what that meant significantly for, uh, for ex expectations for laborers was that laborers would during the week, 
Monday through Saturday, do their work, um, you know, not kind of buck the trend, make sure that, you know, they, they are making money for the people who they're indentured to. Uh, and then on Sunday, they can quietly and, uh, you know, contemplatively, um, you know, worship their gods or whatever, um, as long as colonial officials don't need to see it. They can contemplatively sacrifice a goat to Mother Kali. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that's, that's, that's where, you know, things kind of butt up against each other, right? So where uh, the, kinds of, the kinds of affective connections, the, the, the particular histories uh, of relationships with, with gods and goddesses that Indians are bringing with them to Trinidad, in many ways, oftentimes don't line up with British assumptions about what, really, what true religion ought to look like. Um, and so that kind of those are the moments that I, that I'm, I was interested in, in part because those are the moments that oftentimes show up, right? I mean, the moments when people are, are, are kind of quietly, you know, saying a, saying a quiet prayer to Kali, the British don't care about that, right? It's when they're out on the streets walking on hot coals and somebody's, you know, sacrificing a rooster. That, those are the moments when the, when the police are stepping in and saying, you know, you're disrupting the flow of traffic to, you know, those stores over there or whatever. Um, and so the, in some ways, the, the hope of British officials, as well as, you know, uh, Protestant missionaries and, and so on, um, was that in getting indentured laborers into the system, they would gradually get them, you know, I don't know that they expected them to convert to Christianity, uh, but what they hoped is that they would be incorporating this set of, of norms for uh, for religion that were very much reflective of elite Protestant Christianity. And so in doing, they would then become better workers, um, that they would be spending their times uh, during the week working and, and, you know, on Sunday doing whatever they needed to do. Uh, and so kind of keeping, keeping the worldly work and the otherworldly religion separate uh, would make better laborers in a, in a significant way. Uh, and so things like you know, the um, jails, schools, orphanages, a, lot, a whole array of, uh, of colonial institutions were linked up and were doing this kind of work of, of inculcating this particular understanding about what religion was as, as belief or faith, as, as private, as uh, kind of quiet or quietist in a significant way. So was there anything that really surprised you about your, your journey writing this book? Did you um, overarchingly um, sort of dive into and um, clarify and confirm what you may have suspected or were you really thrown for a loop? Mm. Yeah, I guess I've been sitting with the material for so long now that it's hard to remember what was surprising and what wasn't. But um, I mean, I think... I think I, I came into the project with a set of, uh, of kind of broad questions that emerged from, from work that I had done in doing research in uh, religion in India. Um, and so there were certain kinds of things that were maybe unsurprising in looking at Trinidad because uh, there are certain kinds of ways in which it is, in looking at history, history of, uh, we could say, Indian religions. Um, in Trinidad, you know, we, there's, you know, it's very much reflective of, of what you see in, in India in certain kinds of ways, but at the same time, um, you know, do, doesn't look like you would you you wouldn't necessarily find any of that, although it looks similar in actually in India itself. Um, and at the same time, the kinds of theoretical questions that I was interested in 
particularly the, the relationship between kind of colonial knowledge production and the imposition of the category of religion. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, coming in, I was then, having looked at India, I was not entirely surprised at what I was seeing in Trinidad. But all, at the same time, I think, it, as you were saying, it was very much kind of concentrated um, in a different kind of way um, that, you know, it, it becomes a kind of microcosm um, where things are speeded up and intensified. Um, and so I think one of the interesting things that I found in beginning to look at this material was the way in which um, <clears throat> even early on, you had people who were uh, people who were coming from impoverished backgrounds who didn't have kind of formal educations, um, very much kind of incorporating this ca the category of religion and, and kind of using it for their own purposes um, in ways that probably you didn't see in, in large, large swaths of India, where, you know, in the, um, in the mid to late 19th century, you know, people probably weren't necessarily butting up against colonial officials in significant kinds of ways, oftentimes. Um, and so, I, so one of the things that I was kind of interested in, in, in thinking about the, the work I had read previously on these kinds of questions as being asked in, you know, of the context of India was that oftentimes those works were focused on the, on kind of elites. Um, uh, and so I was very much interested in, interested in kind of understanding the way in which uh, kind of these, you know, group of these, you know, heterogeneous groups of people who were for the most part uh, coming from poor backgrounds who were not educated were, were doing similar kinds of work to what you know elites in in India were doing too, um, and so that that was one of the things that I found uh, kind of interesting and surprising, um, and that very much kind of drove then the kind of uh, the kind of stuff I was focusing on in in looking at the archives. So then, what next? Where do you go from here? Um, so I'm I'm right now I'm working on an article uh, looking at. Um, accusations of madness uh, connected to, um, to Afro-Trinidadian or uh, Afro-Caribbean religions, looking at Trinidad, but also uh, St. Vincent and other contexts, um, and kind of the thinking about uh, kind of the discourse on disability and and uh, and madness in in Afro-Atlantic religions, um, and then I have a, a book project which I hopefully uh, will also be able to advance um, uh, over the summer, looking at um, looking at a variety of different, different uh, kind of case studies of people in the Americas um, from the kind of uh, early 19th to mid 20th century uh, who identify as Hindu in different kinds of ways. Uh, so people of Indian descent, people of African descent, uh, people of European descent um, who are calling themselves Hindu or doing stage magic or doing uh, kind of what we could think of as practical magic um, uh, who were uh, traveling around, who were getting in trouble. I'm looking at sort of uh, oftentimes these people become visible because they're uh, on trial for obia or on trial for fraud in the U.S. Um, and I'm looking at these examples particularly to think about the, on the one hand, the history of the category Hindu um, and how uh, how it's been variously kind of imagined and repurposed in different contexts around the Americas. Um, and particularly the way in which, um, you know, it's, it has been used and has been, you know, seriously contested as uh, both an ethno-racial and also a religious category. Um, and then using the, that particular history to think about, you know, broadly the ways in which the categories, uh, religion and race, uh, have been variously entangled in, um, 
you know, and and what the potential implications those are for uh, for uh, the study of religion, you know, generally. It certainly seems to be a a, um, a passion of yours. Um, the the definition, the identification um, with Hinduism and what that means in terms of various practices, various philosophies, uh, various prejudices, uh, various uh, ethnic or national nationalistic concerns. And so, so unsurprisingly, that, um, <laughs> that passion will, will uh, is continuing to power your work because um, uh, you, you may not be able to exhaust it after 10 books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah, definitely. But so then you'll, you'll have to return to the program when your next fascinating uh, Hindu studies work is out. Well, I, I would love to. Well, you've already had two interviews. <laughs> Why not make it three? <laughs> so um, I think we've taken enough of your time uh, for today. Uh, for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Alexander Rockland of Otterbein University in um, Columbus, Ohio on his 2019 publication, The Regulation of Religion and the Making of Hinduism in Colonial Trinidad. And in case you're listening uh, on a regular basis, um, no, you did not imagine uh, the other interview. There was another interview. <laughs> this is part two. Um, <laughs> hopefully focusing on um, uh, various other topics. Uh, was there anything else that you, you hope to touch on in this follow-up interview? Um, no, I think that's probably more or less it. Wonderful. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. And until next time, for those of you out there, uh, keep reading, uh, keep listening. Uh, stay safe in these uh, transformative times. Take care. <laughs>